you can choose the word popularity, celebrity, fame, influence, whichever word you want to choose. One thing that's true about it is that it's it's fickle. Something that's popular today may not be popular just a few days from now, a few weeks from now, a few months from now. Someone who's celebrated within society right now may not have any real name recognition whatsoever except by just a few people not very long from now. It's interesting when you talk about things like popularity or celebrity because you're sort of tempted to start like naming names. And it's interesting people, the reaction you get to that. Some people think, oh, he's cool. He knows who that is. No, he doesn't. He looked it on Wikipedia. But other people are thinking, no, you shouldn't do things like that because you're giving people who might not be good people some kind of platform. And there's just this pushback. It's interesting to me, it's sad in a lot of ways, that our culture is so tied up with popularity, celebrity, that much of what passes as, as news is really just celebrity gossip. It's, it kind of shows how shallow we are in a lot of ways, that that's a lot of our news is who's marrying who and who's leaving this show, and I don't care. I really just don't care that much. But just because someone has a level of influence or a level of popularity does not necessarily mean that person is bad. In our culture, sadly, it means that more often than not, but it doesn't always mean that. In fact, we should be grateful there are some who use a level of influence or popularity or celebrity to do some good things. Maybe to push a message, that's, that's a good message. That's a good thing, and we should be thankful when that happens. But just to have a certain level of influence or popularity or fame is not a good or bad thing. It's just something. In fact, even Jesus had a certain level of popularity and fame at different times, did he not? We just read about one of them. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 7, the verse says that a great crowd was following Jesus. Now there are times in his ministry where it seems as if the crowd's against him. There are times it seems as if crowds are for him. This is one of those times where people who were around Jesus were at least to some degree for him. There was a level of, of fame or popularity or influence. The verses we read earlier, from Mark 3 verse 7 through verse 12, may seem to be just sort of almost like transition verses. Mark just putting some information out there to get us from one place to the next. But one thing that's true about the Bible is there is not a wasted text in it. There's not a wasted word. There's not a wasted phrase. There's not a wasted paragraph. Everything in Scripture is there for a reason. Every section of Scripture is there to give us something to consider and to think about. And in this text that tells us something about a time in Jesus' ministry when he's facing a level of, of influence, a level, if you may use the word, of popularity, it shows us something of how he handled that. How he handled those moments when it seems as if at least some of the crowd was for him. And it should remind us, when we have a level, maybe of greater influence than we've had before, how should we handle it? I want us to walk through this text this morning, Mark 3, 7 through 12, making four observations. And then having done that, I want us to leave the book of Mark just for a moment as we close to think about four Proverbs to remember when we go through those times where our level of influence might be greater than we had expected it to be. But walking through the text, let's notice first of all that there's a retreating after a confrontation. 
We are barely into Mark chapter 3. And one of the themes you may have seen already that just develops as this book has all, that comes before us, excuse me, as this book is developing, are these confrontations, if you will, between Jesus and specifically the Pharisees, but other religious elites. In fact, just between Mark 2 and the opening of Mark 3, there have already been four times where there's been some kind of run-in between the Pharisees and Jesus. But what's interesting to me is the first of those found at the beginning of Mark chapter 2. And the fourth of those that we studied last week from the beginning of Mark chapter 3 have some parallels. For example, each of those two comes after Jesus healed someone, specifically healed someone who was paralyzed or couldn't use a certain part of their body. Mark 2, the man who was carried by four friends and was paralyzed his legs. Mark 3, 1 through 6, the man who had a withered or shriveled hand, and so his hand was paralyzed. It, it wouldn't work properly. There's also the parallel that after, excuse me, where Jesus had those healings was in a crowded location. In a house, Mark 2, in the synagogue, Mark 3. But the parallel that fits here the best is that after Jesus healed those individuals, in both cases, he went out to the sea. Mark 2.13 tells us that. And now Mark 3.7 tells us that. That he left these crowded places and would go out to the sea or by the sea. Now when we say that Jesus was retreating, we're not saying he was running away. We're not using the word in that way. We're using the word to show that Jesus got away from something because something more important was going on. Here's what I mean. Jesus was always on mission. Jesus knew what He was here to do. Jesus would even say things like, my meat or my sustenance is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. But part of that mission or part of that knowledge of that mission was that Jesus also understood the timing of the mission. Jesus knew when certain things were going to happen. Mark doesn't record it as often as other gospel writers do, but you may recall if you've read all accounts of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Jesus would sometimes say things like, my hour is not yet come, or my time has not yet come. And what that shows was Jesus was vocalizing the fact that, yes, I know what I'm here to do, but I also know the timing in which these things are supposed to happen. When he was supposed to be arrested and be tried and go to the cross. But at other times, such as we see here in Mark chapter 3 and verse 7, he didn't say the words, but he did things to show that he was always, if I may put it this way, on top of the mission. It was not time yet for Jesus to be arrested. It was not time yet for all of those things to happen. And so sometimes Jesus retreated, if you will, yes, for various reasons, but one reason simply was to show I am in full control of the mission and the timing of the mission for which I came. But it also shows us a submission. Because Jesus' level of popularity was very strong in a lot of ways. But what was he doing? He was getting away, or trying to. When you and I have a level of influence that may be greater than we thought it might have been, that is also a time we had better make certain that we are fully submissive to the plan of God. Now that should be true all the time, of course. But with those times where things seem to be growing for us, it becomes very tempting 
to sort of want to do what God has to say and now sort of do what I want to do. Well, that should be the very time, like Jesus did, to say, I am on mission. I am here to do what God wants me to do. What God has said I am to do. Tied with that, the text also tells us about that rising in the influence of Jesus. One thing that Noah and I have pointed out as we've walked through the book of Mark so far is this is the book that just wants to hurry through stuff. He uses words like immediately or straightway a whole bunch of times, especially in the first half of the book. And I point that out because it's almost jarring when you come to a text like this one in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, and instead of just saying something like, a lot of people are coming near Jesus, he starts naming places. And he just keeps naming places. He doesn't just say people are coming from near and far. He, in fact, in verses 7 and 8, he gives a list of seven different places from which people were coming to be near Jesus. Now, the first three on that list don't surprise us at all. Galilee was the region where Jesus had just been. Judea doesn't surprise us at all because that's the, uh, the region or the area in which Jerusalem was. And then Mark also specifically tells us people were coming from Jerusalem, from the city. And you might think, well, that would be the list. But Mark goes on and he lists four other places that we start putting together and get very, very interesting. He mentions this place, Idumea, and you're going, I, I don't know where that is. Idumea was south of Judea. So you have south. Then he mentions across the Jordan. Sometimes in studying the Bible, you'll see this called the Transjordan. Sometimes it's called Perea, P-E-R-E-A. But considering where they were, this would be to the east and the southeast of where they were. Then he mentions Tyre and Sidon, two places that are basically next to each other sometimes called Phoenicia. But from where they were, it was west and northwest. What's Mark saying? People came from the north, the south, the east, and the west in order here to see Jesus. That's one reason why he lists all of these places. Yes, to show the territory, if you will, to which the influence or the, 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 uh, the accounts of Jesus were spreading, but he specifically mentions a place to the south, a place to the east, places to the west, and places to the north and northwest of where they were. People were coming from every direction. But why were they coming? Well, Mark goes back to just being Mark after he gives the list. And he says in a very, very simple way when he says they heard all that Jesus was doing. Now, it's interesting to me that the word all can be translated as what, and the word that can also be translated as what? So you actually have people in the Bible saying what, what? You have people who heard what Jesus was doing, and it's almost as if they say what, and they have to go see for themselves, do the stories that I'm being told match up with the reality? And so from north, south, east, and west, from near and far, Jesus come to, came to where Jesus was in order to see if what they were hearing was actually what was going on. They just had to see for themselves. But may I point this out? Jesus wasn't seeking this out. Jesus wasn't sending people out with a bunch of flyers going, hey, go tell them what I'm doing. In a time before social media, in a time before any real means of mass media, 
Jesus' influence, the accounts of what Jesus was doing were so utterly amazing that people came from every conceivable direction just to see if what they were hearing was actually true. That's how amazing our Jesus is. But it also should cause us to think about why do I want influence? Do I seek it out? Or am I just grateful and feel the responsibility when it comes? That the answer to that one question may show a great difference between me and Jesus. Too many of us seek it out. I want people to see me. Instead of, I want people to see Him. And if that happens to grow an influence, let's use it for God's glory, not our own. But also in this text, you have a little detail. It's sort of interesting to me that Jesus makes things ready to stay safe. You're taking notes. You're ready to, put ready to keep safe. Because this crowd comes around Jesus and He tells His disciples to have a boat ready. Now, I find that interesting because in Luke chapter 4 and verse 30, when a crowd pressed in on Jesus, do you recall, he just went through the crowd. I don't know if it was a miracle. I don't know if he said certain words. I don't have any idea. But he was in full control of the situation to where they're ready to kill him. They're ready to throw him off the brow of the hill, and somehow he just goes right through the crowd. But here, a crowd is pressing up against him, and he doesn't perform a miracle. He doesn't say some kind of words, he says, have have a boat ready. What's the difference in the situations? Oh, in Luke 4, they're wanting to kill him. Here in Mark chapter 3, they're on his side, at least most of them are. But as far as a physical standpoint goes, it's a dangerous situation. <laughs> Let's just be honest. There's only so far you can back up for the crowd when you're standing right beside the sea. And there's only so far your disciples can back up from the crowd when they're standing right beside the sea. So Jesus is thinking, yes, about, if you please, his well-being, his humanity, but he's also thinking about his disciples, and so he tells them to have a boat ready, likely a small fishing boat or a boat that was used to, to, you know, for transit across the Sea of Galilee. He wasn't going to get on a cruise ship. He was just getting on something that would have gotten away. But why? Because the people were being healed by him, and that's wonderful, but they were getting so close to him, the text says they pressed around him. Literally, the text says, they were falling on him. Get that picture in your mind. This was more than just the times when you've been leaving a, a sporting event and crowds are just kind of doing this to each other. There were people all over Jesus trying to get that close to him in order to touch him and to hear him and to be healed by him. They were, the text literally says, falling on him. And so to show his humanity, but also to show his care for his disciples. He doesn't perform a miracle as far as escape, if you will. He just says, have a boat ready. It's a subtle way of him saying to his apostles, I care for you. And if this gets dangerous, we're going to get out of here. But maybe the most interesting part of this whole paragraph is how it ends. As you have a response to unclean spirits. I find it interesting that Mark does not really say that the people who are being healed praised God or thanked Jesus. I have no doubt that probably happened to some degree, but Mark doesn't record that. Instead, what Mark tells us were words that were said not by the people, 
but by unclean spirits that all of a sudden just seem to enter the text out of nowhere. But most fascinating is that what these unclean spirits say is absolutely true. They say to Jesus, You are the Son of God. No truer words have ever been spoken on the face of this earth than for someone to look at Jesus and make that statement. But Jesus doesn't allow them to say that. It's interesting, by the way, that Mark says they cried out this statement. I've heard, maybe you hear Dame Winkler preach from time to time. He loves this word for cried out because it actually means to croak like a raven. He likes to point that out. But the picture of it is, it's an unmistakable noise. This is not just crying out. This is an absolute noise that they're crying out this statement. But they're stating the truth. So why then did Jesus tell them not to state something that was absolutely true? There are several possibilities. I think it could be any combination of these, but let me give you three. Some suggest that Jesus did not want anything positive, if you will, positive, if you will, to do with demons. Now, he had things to do with demons. He cast them out. But he didn't want anything positive to do. He didn't want it to seem as if the demons had things right. After all, as Paul would later ask rhetorically, what connection does Christ have with Belial? What do good and evil have to do with each other? Hopefully nothing, except for good to cast out evil. So that's a possibility. There's another possibility is that while the demons were saying something that was true because they had some level of spiritual insight, the people, many of the people anyway, had not yet grasped the truth that was being said, and Jesus did not want the truth being learned from a demon. Because if I learned that truth from a demon, what else might I learn from a demon? That's a possibility. There's another possibility that will come in later in the text, in Mark chapter 3 and verse 22, where the scribes will come along and they'll say that Jesus has a demon. And so since those scribes who are coming, or maybe some are already there, he doesn't want them to be pleased to have any ammo. He doesn't want to say, see, the demons are on your side. They've been saying the truth. Now, which one of those is it? I don't know. Maybe it's a combination of all of them. Maybe it's something else. But whatever the specific reason, excuse me, that Jesus tells the, or commands these unclean spirits to not state the truth, it underlies a very, very powerful point. And that is that Jesus, yes, accepted praise. Yes, he accepted worship, but only from those who were truly worshiping. Obviously, Jesus wasn't going to accept praise from a demon. But take it down a level from that. Jesus wouldn't accept flattery either. Jesus knew the hearts of individuals. Obviously, he knew these unclean spirits. And so he would not accept quote-unquote worship or praise from someone who wasn't on his side. From someone who was completely against him. Contrast that, by the way, with how it feels when you have a level of influence, maybe a level of popularity, and it doesn't really matter who's saying it, but they say something that builds up your ego, so you don't really care who's saying it as long as it builds up your ego. Is that not a great temptation? I really don't care if they're the most immoral person on the earth. They said something neat about me. That's very unlike Jesus. Jesus would not accept 
just for his ego to be built up. Jesus rebuked him and would only allow worship or praise from those who were trying to honor him. Now, as I said, we're going to leave the book of Mark for a second. And I want us to think about those times in our life where we may have a little better, a little stronger level of influence than others. Because a lot of people are going, this lesson isn't for me. I'm not popular. I'm not a celebrity. Every one of us has influence. It may be large, it may be small, but every one of us does. And if we're honest, if we look back at our lives, we can see times where the, the level of our influence might be greater than others. Maybe you get a promotion at work. Maybe you're elected to, to class office at school. Maybe you have a growing influence on social media. Maybe you're just a very popular person in your, in your neighborhood. You're the one people look for, for phone numbers and all that kind of, or probably not phone numbers anymore, but whatever. Maybe you run the Facebook page for your neighborhood. But at some point in our life, you have a little bit stronger influence. What are some things to keep in mind? Four Proverbs. Proverbs 16 and verse 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Now does that say everyone who has fame or celebrity is an abomination to the Lord? No. But what is Solomon saying? The one who lets it go to their head. It does not just say is wrong or is unwise, as we might expect in the book of Proverbs. Look at the terminology. Is an abomination to the Lord. That's about as strong of a language as you get in the Old Testament. For something to be an abomination before God. God absolutely hates it when I am filled with pride. Because I put myself in His place. The most famous one we'll mention is Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18. You probably thought this would be one of them. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Fame, celebrity, popularity, influence, they feel really, really good until they don't. And if all I have done is built up me, eventually it's going to come crashing down. Because no matter how good you might be, no matter how great you might be at a lot of things, don't take this person because I'm talking to me too. You and I are horrible foundations. And so if I'm building on that foundation, that foundation being me, it's going to cave in on itself. It may be in this lifetime, it may be over the course of a lifetime, or it may be on the judgment day, but it is going to crash and burn. Whereas if I build on the foundation of Jesus, that's the foundation that cannot be destroyed. A third proverb. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom. And humility comes before honor. You may have a level of influence because you have great expertise in something. Maybe you've truly studied something to a certain level. And so you, you are well respected in a particular field or for writing a certain thing or dealing with a certain thing. That's wonderful. But you don't know what God knows about it. And the humility that says, I don't know anywhere near everything. As long as that's not said in a false, falsely humble way is the kind of humility we need. 
even if I'm the world's leading expert at something, I'm not God. And those who are truly humble are the ones who know they know stuff, but also know enough to say, I don't know everything. The fourth proverb, Proverbs 30, verse 32. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil, put that was the Hebrew. No, I'm just kidding. Put your hand on your mouth. I love the word picture of that verse that ends it. Yes. But I, but I also love that verse because it will absolutely wake you up if you read it carefully. Look at what Solomon does. He connects or he makes parallel exalting yourself with devising evil. You think that's not a reason to put your hand over your mouth? When I'm building myself up, the Bible says that's devising evil. It's a frightening thing. Jesus is our example in all things. And as such, He's even an example for how to handle it when I have a level and you have a level of influence or popularity that grows. Here's the ultimate takeaway. Whatever we have is for God's glory. That's not just things. That's not just finances. That's not just relationships. Whatever we have is for God's glory. And that includes our influence. If I use my influence just to draw people to me, that is a misuse of something I'm supposed to be stewarding to the glory of God. But if I use any influence I might have, whether it's just with one person or some huge number of people because I've got some great platform, if I use that as a way to glorify God and not myself, now I'm doing things like Jesus. Because Jesus did not seek it out. But Jesus always pointed people to His heavenly Father. And Jesus is to be my life. Is He yours? If not, will you come? Always say to encourage you.